Welcome to the English We Podcast. I'm Jim Ish. Today you're going to hear a reading by Asali Solomon, who was a visiting writer at Widener University in October 2022. We recorded the event and we'd like to share it with you. I'm going to hand it off to uh, the event host, Professor Michael Kasharal. Our introducer today is Jatu Fambula. She's a junior uh, English and creative writing major. I had seen Jatu here and there uh, throughout her first two years at Widener, but this semester I've had the distinct pleasure of having her in my advanced fiction writing course. In our discussions of Solomon's latest novel, uh, The Days of Afrikati, Jatu not only made many perceptive comments, but she has done so with an enthusiasm for the written word that is truly infectious. In her craft analyses on the novel, Jatu has demonstrated that she's an especially careful reader, highlighting the significance of individual words and character gestures, details that others might easily breeze past. She's also a tremendously strong writer. The characters in her fiction are complex, the details expertly chosen, and the dialogue natural and spot on. Jatu is doing outstanding work um, outside of the classroom as well. She's hosted and participated in open mics, and works on her literary magazines. She's also a gifted actor who was simply amazing in Lone Brick Theater's production of Metamorphoses last year. Um, and there's more to say I could go on, but it's time to turn things over to Jatu. So our guest today is award-winning novelist and short story writer, Sally Solomon. Her first novel, Disgruntled, was named a best book of the year by the San Francisco Chronicle and the Denver Post. Her debut story collection, Get Down, earned her a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and the National Book Foundation's 535 honor, and was a finalist for the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. Her work has a appeared in O, The Oprah Magazine, Vibe, Essence, The Paris Review Daily, McSweeney's, and several anthologies, and on NPR. Solomon teaches fiction writing and literature of the Afri African diaspora at Haverford College. It's been my utmost pleasure to read some of Solomon's work this semester. I had the good fortune of being able to dig into her debut collection, Get Down, as well as the novel she published 13 years later, The Days of Afrikiti. It isn't difficult at all to see why she has achieved such critical acclaim. No matter which book of hers you pick up, and I highly recommend all three, <laughs> you will not fail to find an astounding attention to detail, all of which render unfamiliar places on the characters occupying them in shockingly real and familiar ways. It's incredible to me how much information she can pack into just a few lines of dialogue, for example, with cleverly picked words. She is able to quickly and effect effectively establish the setting in a scene, as well as the mood and state of mind of each of the characters involved in just one sentence. Through the repetition of a single word pet name like Honey, you can track for yourself the ebb and flow of tension in Lascelles and Wynne's relationship throughout the days of Afrikiti. Another thing I really appreciate about her writing is just how real her characters are. She's not afraid to show their uglier sides, nor the consequences of their actions when that ugliness gets the better of them. Whether it's a middle school girl punishing her black peers because of her own struggle with blackness in a nearly all-white, all-girls school, or a woman in middle age coming to terms with her cold marriage and the life she'd stumbled into up until then, these characters do not exist to be liked or disliked. 
They're meant to be understood as the complex individuals they are or are, or are meant to represent and the things that drive them to the actions that they do, whether good or bad. I could continue to sing her praises all day, honestly, but by now I'm sure you're all excited to hear from the author herself. Please join me in welcoming Asali Sal. stories with extra interest. <laughs> so I'm going to be reading from The Days of Afrikiti. Um, this novel came out about a year ago. Pretty soon it'll be out, I guess, in paperback. I'm going to read two sections. And to give you a little bit of background, so it's sometimes hard to read from this novel because it jumps around in time almost constantly. So it's like time is kind of layered in each scenes, but you don't have to worry. There's not going to be a test on it. So just try to sort of listen to, you know, be present for the scenes. But to give a little context, the book is about Lizelle Belmont, who lives in Mount Airy. She's a history, um, she's a, uh, a sort of indifferent history teacher at prep school. She's married to Wynn, who's a white lawyer who has recently lost a bid for Congress. And the setting of the novel is that she is hosting a dinner party. They're hosting a dinner party to thank the people who helped support his failed bid for Congress. But just as she's getting ready for the dinner party, she gets a call from an FBI agent and says, just so you know, as a courtesy, we're going to indict him sometime soon. And like, one question is like, should she cancel the dinner party, right? The other important thing to know about Lizelle and another character in the book is that she experienced the great love of her life about 20 years previous with a woman named Selena when they were both um, they're both students at Bryn Mawr College and Selena is a sort of is really challenged by mental illness is kind of a fragile character and so while we sort of see what's happening with Lizelle and her night in this June dinner party we also get a sense of what she's doing as she goes around the city so I'm going to read two short sections and the first is sort of telling us about the first meeting of Lizelle and Selena in Bryn Mawr College. Um, this takes place, the novel in general takes place in like the early 2010s. This takes place in the early 90s. The good news about the final year of college was that there was a class about black women writers taught by a new black woman professor. When Lizelle arrived, she realized with a sinking feeling that the excitement was widespread. The room buzzed with too many bodies too many girls flushed pink with excitement. Chairs wrapped and double wrapped the long table. Lizelle felt her shoulders gripping for the fight to stay in the class, which would likely prioritize English majors. Though she loved novels, she had not majored in literature. Her freshman writing seminar had been taught by a white man in his 70s who smelled like cigars and mulch and believed World War I was and would always be the most significant event in world history. He'd given Lizelle her first and only C. She landed in anthropology largely because the intro class, which was also taught by an aged white man, had included meals of men. This class is called Writing Away from No Way. I don't even think we need to talk about why, but eventually we will, announced Professor Bruin, a tall, slender woman with sharp cheekbones and a tall, fade haircut. 
She wore a collared white shirt, brown slacks, and lace-up Oxford shoes. After roll call, during which it was established that most people in the room were on the wait list, class began with an icebreaker. Everyone took turns saying their name and mentioning the last book they enjoyed. A shrill girl who'd waved her hand around obnoxiously back in freshman seminar claimed she'd read Das Kapital. A student whom Moselle knew to be a combination of punk and teacher's pet with her three face piercings and obscene t-shirt said she was like totally obsessed with Didion. Lizelle panicked. She hadn't read anything all summer. She and Kit, her ex, had worked, fucked, and lain around in front of the television in a cross-section of fans. Tropic of Cancer, blurred Lizelle. It was a book she knew nothing about. She had seen it, two copies actually, side by side in the place where she and Kit had been house-sitting. Tittering interrupted, and it struck Lizelle that she and the professor were the only two black women there. Didn't other black girls at Bryn Mawr want to read books by black women? As if on cue, the classroom door burst open. The arriving girl was, Lizelle could see, without even turning her head, black, and wearing something skimpy and bright yellow, all wrong for showing up late. Lizelle felt her cheeks warm as the girl clacked forward in what sounded like platform shoes. As the class continued to casually demonstrate their erudite and wide-ranging tastes, Lizelle began to feel she very well might hate, if not this professor, then her fawning white familiars. Though the names on the syllabus thrilled her, Antisaki Shange, Audre Lorde, Octavia Butler, Angela Davis, Lucille Clifton, Jane Cortez, an unfamiliar lovely name, she reflected that on the first day of class, it was permissible to get up and quietly leave. She could give her seat to the girl standing near the door in her ridiculous dress. Miss, said the professor, before you arrived, we were introducing ourselves and sharing the title of something we enjoyed reading recently. Selena Octave had recently enjoyed reading The Coldest Winter Ever by Sister Soldier. The class looked to the clearly bemused professor for guidance. Verities, Lizelle's mother, had hated that book, but it had made a strong impression on Lizelle, especially some parts. Lizelle looked at Selena, her short, ropey dreadlocks, lips like Lauren Hills. Remembering that the coldest winter ever had given Lizelle what Kit called a girl boner, she forgot to get up and leave the class. She couldn't stop staring at Selena. Lizelle had had some notable first encounters. When she met her ex-girlfriend, Nanda, she had imagined them tangle up in each other. At the party where she met Kit, she'd felt a charge that could just as easily have been violent dislike. Between those years, the pool Lizelle felt to various girls had been primarily about their theirness. She wondered if this girl was gay, feeling panic and dread at either possibility. After Professor Bruin dismissed the class, a throng of students more moved forward to make the case for why they needed to take it. Lizelle moved against the flow, instead heading towards Selena, so intently thinking of what she would say that she didn't see the monogrammed tote bag in her path. Though at one point she had been falling forward, she somehow wound up on her back. Are you okay? Lizelle looked up into liquid black eyes, smoking with coal, wide with worry. She had magnificent eyebrows, though the style at the time was thin little half moons. Her thick, neatly shaped one shined with luster. Slender gold bracelets tinkled as she reached out and touched Lizelle on the shoulder. I'm fine, said Lizelle. Then a throbbing in her head made her lie back down. 
A phrase from Verity's favorite book by Toni Morrison popped into Lizelle's head. A hot thing. The girl squatted, folding her impossibly long legs. Lizelle, right? Professor Bruin stood over the top of them. Oh, stood over the two of them. Maybe you should stop by the infirmary, just to be sure. I think I heard your head hit the floor. To Selena, she said, you'll look after her, won't you? Am I in the class, Lizelle asked. But the throng of white girls had already closed around the professor again. Can you stand? The girl asked as she helped Lizelle up. Of course, Lizelle said, though she was unsure until she was on her feet. Then she tried to play cool. Do you have somewhere to be? I think I can make it there on my own. Selena dismissed that with a wave. I'm done with classes for the day, but I don't know where the infirmary is, so if you're strong enough, you'll have to lead us there. It was a soft afternoon, temperamentally more late June than early September. The campus had a dreamy green aura. How do you walk in those shoes, she asked, looking at Selena's stacked Mary James. It was not what she had imagined herself saying, but she was panicked at the silence. She had not felt anxious around someone in this way for years. Selena smiled, looking down at Lizelle's Doc Martens. I'm not the one who just did the somersault. Lizelle laughed. Ouch. Yes, I believe that's what you said when you fell, too. Considering it was the first day of classes, the waiting room at the infirmary was surprisingly full of the infirm. At least one girl was sobbing quietly. The wait was long enough for them to learn they were both from Philadelphia, which for reasons Lizelle never understood was not common among black girls on the campus. Lizelle hailed from West Philadelphia, Selena from farther west. They had gone to different academic magnet high schools. While making small talk, Lizelle made calculations. This girl was new to college. After she stopped running around with the ill-conceived crew she picked up during freshman orientation, she would need actual friends. But was this the beginning of a friendship? She looked at Selena's lips, the small shapes of her collarbone, moist with sweat, and felt like a lesbian vampire, also lightheaded. Maybe these were concussion symptoms. Lizelle thought ruefully of Kit, the first girl to say, I love you. She had dutifully parroted it back less than three months ago. Early in the summer, she had felt love, house-sitting in a gorgeous downtown apartment belonging to a gay couple that were family friends of Kit's parents. But deep into July, Lizelle had wondered aloud one too many times why people who could afford air conditioners didn't have them, and drunkenly set off a three-hour argument with Kit by describing a cafe waitress as beguiling. It was during that argument that Kit had prided out of Lizelle that she did not and could never love Kit. Or maybe anyone, really, she'd said, at which Kit had laughed maniacally and then hurled a bunch of words at Lizelle that stung damaged, user, social climber, empty hole where your heart should be. Lizelle had waited until the last possible day to come back to campus from her mother Verity's house, feeling both shame and paranoia about the whole thing. She pledged to stay away from girls and devote herself to her studies, her future, and becoming a better person. Now she was chatting up this freshman girl who was probably straight, even if their arms lightly rested against each other as they sat side by side in boxy wood chairs. Kit's rage, her pronouncement, the vow to stay away from girls, the blazing sight of Selena, she ran through cycles of these thoughts in the span of a few minutes. Then she screwed up her courage as if to jump into freezing water. She smiled. I can't believe your boyfriend didn't want to go to the same college to keep an eye on you. 
Here, there was a pause during which she died, while Selena busied herself untangling her thin bracelets. She finally looked up. I don't have a boyfriend, she said. Her eyes were sad. The effect, as she smiled, was of sunshine through rain, rainbows. What about your boyfriend? How does he deal with the distance? They looked at each other. Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Okay, so stop there. Okay, so the second part is this is a scene early in the relationship that Lizelle has with her husband, Wynn. So she and Wynn originally meet, um, they're working the same sort of after, after college job um, at, a, at a sort of media company. And then they meet up again later in Philadelphia when he moves there to become a lawyer and she's there teaching a history job and feeling somewhat lonely and depressed. Um, and so I think one of the things about this scene is that originally when she meets Will, she thinks that he's gay. And that's sort of a big part of how they get a kind of camaraderie of closeness because she thinks it's not that things aren't, things aren't gonna go in a certain direction, right? So she has a certain kind of level of comfort with him. Um, and another person who's mentioned here again is um, Verity, who's her mother. Verity's voice actually opens the chapter. You sure are spending a lot of time with this gay white man, said Verity a few months later. After Wynn moved to Philadelphia, he and Lizelle became constants. They talked on the phone like middle school girls and went downtown to watch art house movies, Rushmore, The Thin Red Line, and a revival of Thelma and Louise. Lizelle showed Wynn South Street, where he complained about the grease smell and the grimy kids begging with their dogs. Why would anyone come here on purpose? He asked, unimpressed by the folk art gallery or the hat store. On more successful outings, she took him to Robin's Books or to Rittenhouse Square Park. They saw the roots and diggable plants perform at Electric Factory. Once, when they were downtown, she pointed out the gallery mall, afraid if she stepped inside, she would revert to an awkward teenager attending Masterman and living with her mother. I'm showing him the city, Lizelle told Verity. What does gay have to do with anything? Besides, I don't think he's gay. But you are, right? Gay? Lizelle queried herself, as she often did, about why she spoke to Verity as much as she did. But she did not ask herself why she was spending so much time with Wynne. She knew why. It was fun. He made a mockery of most aspects of his life. His staid family, the arrogant idiots at the firm where he worked. When she told him about the dreariness of her childhood, the routine deprivations of being black, female, and gay in America, his interest made it all an ironic, hilarious story. Instead of swelling, tragic strings in the background, there was only his laughter. And he always paid for dinner. There was another thread between them. Once, during a $25 cab ride back to her house from downtown, Wynne had said, I don't know why, but you make me feel calm. This move, Lizelle, who'd been nicknamed for a predator, who tried to throw a woman out of a window, who'd wound up alone. One weekend, Wynne couldn't hang out because he had a date with someone named Shannon. I can't tell if that name is pretentious or trashy for a white person, Lizelle said to him <laughs> the next Friday at a happy hour in a little manium bar by the river. Many of the doors they darkened she never would have ventured through as a black woman alone. He laughed. What did Shannon ever do to you? She's just an innocent, breasty paralegal from New Jersey. Lynn thought about how she'd try to get a job. Lizelle thought about how she'd try to get a job as a paralegal. The extreme feminists of the women at that office, the secretaries, paralegals, and the sole woman lawyer. She shook her head. 
I thought you were better than that. Am I, though? Wynne said. She's the same age as me. It's not Working Girl or any of those Melanie Griffith movies. Did you see the one where the father hires her as a prostitute for his... But do you think she's good for your profile at the firm? Honestly, I think fucking a paralegal might be a requirement for making partner there. And it's safer than dating one of the married lawyers. Maybe you shouldn't think of your job as a dating service. I think people are even using the internet for that now. As usual, you are the soul of reason, Lizelle. And yet, there's just something about Shannon. It was a languid Friday evening near the end of the summer. The sun burned florid outside the barred windows. The air hung thick with cigarette smoke and air conditioning. A man rolled over to the jukebox, selected the song Wicked Game, and began dancing with himself. Guitar sounds flooded the room with mournfulness. Go home, Larry, the bartender said, sounding weary. You're making it unhappy hour. Lizelle knew Wynne would put down stakes at his soulless job, turn in his long-term rental, and move into a sleek place being renovated downtown. He would no longer live in the motel-like corporate apartments by the airport and be so willing to head up Lincoln Drive to retrieve her for adventures in fine living. School and her teaching would start again. She would laugh less. Then he would get caught up in various melodramas with various paralegals. She would have no one to talk to. I have to get a fucking life, she said. The bartender moved away from her. They watched Larry's jagged dancing. He howled along with Chris Isaac. Nobody loves no one. It reminded Lizelle of a loud song Wynn liked to play, where the singer kept shouting, There is no love in this world anymore. Hey, Wynn said suddenly, I have an idea. You know, I'm moving next week, but I'm going to slip my wrist if I have to spend another weekend at that fluorescent-lit dungeon where I'm staying. What if I spring for a weekend at the Ritz-Carlton, and you come crash with me? Lizelle felt a, a sensation so mixed she wouldn't name it. Oh, whatever. Why don't you invite Shannon? He looked at her as if from the sides of his eyes. Yes, ours is a beautiful love story, Shannon and mine. But to be honest, we've only been on two dates. Anyway, I want you to come. She looked at him. You know I'm a lesbian, right? She said, thinking in quick succession of a number of women she'd been with, holding their hands, looking into their eyes, the grip of their thighs. Her last thought was of Selena. Wynn snorted. Oh, Lizelle, I'm not trying to fuck you. I'm trying to have a fancy sleepover. We can do each other's hair. I will never let you touch my hair. <laughs> and she never did. Not when they decided to, quote, try doing sex, his words, 40 minutes before checkout time at the Ritz-Carlton, or even years later, when she had just given birth to Patrice after three hours hard labor, and Wynne was reaching over to give her a strange head pat. She managed to block him with her elbow without jostling the tiny alien in her arms. What? He cried. You did a good job. Dark wood furniture from various historical eras. 
They initially sat on hard chairs, drinking sour lemonade in the humid, unair-conditioned den, and eventually moved to the darker, but not cooler, dining room. Aware that Wynn's family was wealthy, Lizelle tried not to look perplexed by the menu of tuna fish sandwiches and cold, grainy tomato soup. My parents honeymooned in Spain, so it's not summer around here until we have gazpacho, Wynn said. You are correct, said Wynn's dad, and the best gazpacho is my Lenny's gazpacho. Well, actually, the tomatoes aren't quite good yet, the mother said, blushing. I got this from that new gourmet grocery store in West Hartford. You know where I got those lime bars at a time? They have really good prepared foods. Wynn's dad made a sound in his throat. This is almost as good as yours. Not quite, but almost. Wynn's mom stood. Could use some salt, right? Anybody want salt? Sit down and enjoy your lunch, Lenny, said Wynn's dad. You've been fussing around all morning. Making tuna fish, thought Lizelle. We'll get by without the salt. You know I can't have any. Dr. Lang says Dad has to watch his salt, she said to Wynne, taking her seat again. You don't seem like you need any salt either, Wynne, said his dad. Have you had your numbers checked lately? Dad, I'm not even 30, he said, flushing lightly. I don't check my numbers. Lizelle, said Wynne's dad. Don't let my boy kill himself with his devil-may-care attitude. That's a little dramatic, George, Wynne's mom said mildly. But when, when was the last time you had a physical? It's not that, it's just important to take care of yourself. Wynn drummed his fingers on the table. Let's move on to more interesting topics. For instance, you might ask Lizelle about herself. Lizelle's cheeks burned under George's and Lenny's gazes. I'm sorry, said Wynn's father, though he looked distinctly unapologetic. It's just we see so little of our son. You see even less of Jennifer or Jandy or whatever she's calling herself now, Wynn retorted rather fiercely. Lizelle didn't know much about his older sister, except the crucial detail that she drove him crazy. He kept trying to tell stories that Lizelle knew were supposed to enrage her, but she couldn't figure out the central issue between them. Lizelle, the mother said, ignoring Wynn's outburst, how's your sandwich? There's not too much celery, is there? Everything is great, she lied, although there was a lot of celery, which she despised. So, Bryn Mawr College, said George Anderson. A lot of girls there. Did you like that? Lizelle felt an irrational terror in her throat. Had Wynne told her father about her life before him? Told his father about her life before him? Ew, Dad, said Wynne, growing decidedly younger with each moment in his parents' home. George is a terrible sexist, said Lenny, smiling. He's a lot better than when we met, though, aren't you, George? Sexism is a dying art, said George, like chivalry. That it is chivalry. Jesus, Wynn muttered. No wonder freaking Jandy never comes around. Your sister loves doors being held for her, and I don't think it's Jandy anymore. I think it's back to Jennifer, but we'll find out for sure next month. George, said Wynn's mother, beginning to color faintly. What, Wynn barked. Are you all preparing for one of her much-anticipated, highly-publicized no-shows? Have you contacted the West Hartford Tatler? Now Wynn, said Wynn's mom. Wynn turned to Lizelle. Once a year, my sister says she's going to come home, and then a lot of complicated plans are made, farm animals are slaughtered for burnt offerings, and then she gets a mysterious illness or a sudden new job, even though she's the most perpetually unemployed adult, and we're actually going to go visit her this time, said Wynn's dad with a hint of pride. Wynn's mother made another noise. His father continued. She's going to host us in this little French village where she's been staying. She's met someone, and apparently it's serious. A widower high up in the telecom industry. He cleared his throat. Is that right, said Wynn, looking back and forth between his parents. 
Family vacation with three-fourths of the family, huh? His father looked amused. We haven't traveled together, the four of us, what, since you were in college? We didn't have the chance to tell you, said his mom, twisting a napkin. We didn't invite you only because you're starting this new job and everything. She trailed off looking at Lizelle. My goodness, we really have been terrible hosts. Maybe you all can stay the night. We really do want to get to know you, Lizette. It's Lizelle, snapped Wynne. It's okay, said Lizelle. Oh dear, I'm sorry, Wynne's mother said. I once knew a girl named Liesel, said Wynne's father in a once upon a time voice. Liesel Schneider. Her family had come from Austria after the war. My parents were very suspicious of her parents, if you know what I mean. Oh, wait, is this the part of the lunch where we talk about the Nazis we've known? <laughs> Let's go back a moment to the subject of Jennifer. Is the relationship serious, or is this widower seriously wealthy, and you think it's a good idea for her to support herself by sponging off an old man? Wynne's dad's eyes sparkled with mischief. I know someone else who sponged off an old man for many years. Thanks for lunch, said Wynne. He pushed away his bowl, which looked full. His father said, calm down, boy, you know I'm joking. Lizelle could see gears shifting in Wynne's head. She could feel him trying to decide whether to blow up the afternoon. Not wanting to be in those smoking rooms, she attempted to radiate the calmness he supposedly found in her. He leaned back in his chair. Wynne's dad spoke again, this time to Lizelle. So did Wynne tell you I grew up on the main line? Not so far from your alma mater. One would have that there would have been a good place to hide as an escaped Nazi. I wonder about that sometimes myself, said Wynne. Honey, we should probably get on the road soon if we're going to make it to the cabin tonight. Okay, she said. Honey? Wynne's mother shook her head vigorously. Stay just a bit longer. Aunt Gladys was planning to stop by and show us pictures from her Lake District trip. How long has it been since you've seen her, Winnie? <laughs> Wynne laughed. Gladys? Mom, that is not a way to get me to stay. Well, I have dessert, she said with a panic look. Let me serve you some dessert. Does anybody want coffee? Darling, you know better than anybody what coffee in the afternoon does to my stomach, said Wynne's dad. Coffee sounds good, Mom, said Wynne. I can make it. Then Lizelle was sitting at the dining room table with George Anderson, and he was asking her what she'd studied, how she liked teaching middle school students, what her parents did. He said he'd once considered teaching, but lacked the patience. He did not cry when she made it clear that her father was no one to her. They chatted politely, but she felt like a shape-shifting creature under her pasted smile. A picture she'd once seen of Sarah Bartman, the emotionally intelligent Black Cross student St. almost fired. A monkey. The uniform, a uniform scholarship student, Serafina. Verity. Wayne and his mother came back with sweet strawberries and dry, pale cake. Lizelle passed on the coffee for much the same reason as her future father-in-law. She wondered if there could be any other possible commonalities between her and this particular individual of that distant species, the wealthy old white man. As they pulled out of the driveway, Lizelle looked back to see Mr. Anderson squinting with his arms folded and Lenny waving energetically. Did you enjoy your lunch with the Andersons? asked Wynne. Did that happen, Lizelle asked? She meant to say it to herself, but Wynne was there. Now your family. Please don't call me honey anymore. It made me feel like, made you feel like you were in a diorama with the Andersons in the Caucasians of Connecticut natural history exhibit. I enjoyed your enthusiastic smiling. You fit right in, Wynne said, an edge to his voice. Are we having our first fight? asked Lizelle. What is it about? I guess I'm fighting with myself. I just can't believe how much I let them get to me about Jennifer. Jandy? Wynne laughed. No, seriously. Before this was, 
Before this, she was down in Austin trying to become a singer with that name. I didn't make that up. That's the best part of your family so far. The name, Jandy. I know. I should kill her, Wynne said lightly. Just kidding. Did you have to say just kidding? They laughed. To learn more about the works of Asali Solomon, please visit her website, asalisolomon.com. We will leave a link in the show description. The English Suite podcast is produced by Jim Esch and students at Widener University. You can send feedback and suggestions to WidenerEnglishSuite at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.